Welcome to Coffee with Curtis, your home for quality business conversation. Hey everyone, I'm Robert Curtis. Welcome to the podcast. On the program this time, we have Daniel Bernard. Daniel is an entrepreneur, sports industry investor, but as you will hear, a real operator at heart. He's an example of the modern day business leader, high EQ and people focused. Fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it. We covered so many topics. So I hope you enjoy it too. Here's the podcast. Daniel, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I met you just a few months ago when we were in the offices at V. I think I initially realized just how special you were. And then we bumped into each other (laughs) on a flight to London, one of the one of the uh, escape routes to London. I was like, I have to get him on the podcast because he's doing such amazing things. So good morning and welcome. Good morning. Good morning. I got my coffee for Coffee with Curtis. So I'm ready. And uh, it's a real <laughs> privilege and a pleasure to meet you, Robert, on this podcast. You know, And as you say, we've only known each other for a few months, but it's really good to know you. And I'm delighted to be invited to your podcast for sure. Amazing. Well, I've got my coffee as well. I started this re- genuinely out of a desire to just literally record real coffee conversations with people with almost no agenda. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing where the conversation heads. And uh, for those listeners out there who don't know you yet, those very few people, um, just give us a 360 on Daniel and your your sort of career and life and uh, give us a sense of the man. Sure. Okay. So I'll just speak for about two hours. No, nothing more than that. Don't worry about it. Um, so uh, uh, so I was born in the UK, as you can still hear from my accent, which is one of the few things that have remained British with me because I've been living in Israel now since 1999. Um, and so everything else about me is pretty Israeli, to be honest, uh, including the elbows uh, and everything else. And uh, uh, and I think for better and for worse, but I'm, I'm delighted to be living in this country. It's fantastic. Um, and when it comes to work, I've been privileged to work in the sports industry for over 20 years now, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, started in media and broadcast, uh, set up a data, a data, sports data operation in 2004, which uh, has been going very, very well. It's still my anchor to t- till today. Um, 2015, I handed over the role of CEO to someone far better than me to manage the company going forward at that stage because I was asked to set up uh, sports betting platforms for emerging markets, um, which I went and did that for about five years. Uh, which is fantastic. I learned a hell of a lot about compliance, uh, probably more than I ever wanted to learn about compliance. Um, but I set up a product. There's definitely a subsection. There's definitely a subsection of people in society who enjoy learning about compliance. Well, I won't say I enjoyed learning. It's been painful at some stage, but I tell you, it's been. It's, it is crucial. It is crucial to understand, especially when you're talking about sports betting. It, you know, I think there's a long way that the regulators need to go. I mean, that's a whole different question. Uh, to make sure that uh, they don't constrict the uh, betting platforms too much and actually support them in in providing a a clean, um, regulated product that can actually uh, not cross uh, unnecessary boundaries. But as I say, that's that's a whole different uh, discussion. Um, I set up a product company in Kiev, uh, 40, 45 strong developer team, which is fantastic. Um, And then around the beginning of COVID, I took a step back from that uh, operation once again um, for the second time in my life, I realized that I'm good at getting a company from nothing to something. Once it's there, there are a million people much better than me to take it to the next level. So I, I've moved to the board on that company. And now I turn my attention to investing in sports and sports technology, um, which is fantastic. Um, you know, I'm very, very 
blessed to be involved with a couple of uh, good VCs, um, global, and uh, having fun investing. Um, I will be honest though, I, I do miss, I'm, I'm a bit of a founder uh, in my nature, and uh, so I miss being on the other side of the table a little bit. Uh, sometimes in due diligence calls, I, I identify too much with the guy on the other side, uh, because that's what I like. I like building something, I like you know, getting my hands dirty, and, uh, and at the moment it's, it's great to be an investor, it really is, uh, expanding my network on that. Uh, but yeah, I do, I do miss that uh, management of operation. I think it's only a matter of time before I, I turn my attention to that again. Amazing. Well, we're going to dive into some of the learnings and insights over that very accomplished career, which uh, it sounds like it's still on a very serious trajectory. So um, before we do that, little Daniel, growing up in England, what did you want to be when you grew up? Because it sounds like you almost maybe got into an area where actually you probably wanted to, to enjoy anyway, which is sports. But who did little Daniel want to be? I ask it because I live out my dream on this podcast. I always wanted to be like a news anchor or reporter. Wow, and at, eight, at 18, I was deciding university or journalism school. And journalism school cost a fortune. It was private and just didn't have the money just did yeah. not have the money. So I went to university, which was free still then, and yeah. <laughs> when I did a degree and all the rest of it. But every day since, I regret not going to journalism school. So I'm living my dream out on this podcast with you. Well, that's fantastic. That's brilliant. That really is. So little Daniel wanted to be a pilot for many, many years. That was my dream. I wanted to be a pilot. I loved everything about flight. Um, and I still do, by the way. I mean, I fly a lot, especially pre-COVID. I was in the air a lot. And I always take a window seat. Uh, because I just love watching the wing as we take off, as we land. It still blows me away how something this big <laughs> can get lifted into the air due to the physical game of pressure either side. And I, I love it. I absolutely love it. I love watching birds fly. I love everything about flight. Um, so I always wanted to be a pilot, but that didn't come to me. It's still time. I think there's still time. <laughs> There's still time. Did you ever take lessons, like for private flying? Yeah, you know, the usual sort of up in a Cessna a couple of times, of course. Yeah, I've done that a few times and uh, love it. Never had the time or I've never made the time. You know, I, I never agree with people and say, I don't have the time. You never make the time. You know, there's always time for things that you want to make time for. So I never made the time for a proper course. And I don't regret that. That's fine, obviously. Um, and that's, that's why I say it's, there's still time for that. I can get to that. That's what little Daddy Well, we're... <laughs> We'll, we'll try and make this as dynamic flying this podcast as possible. But let's talk about the sports industry and sports tech um, and, and how you sort of entered that industry. Um, I know from just following you, you're obviously very much into actual the, the, the spectatorism of sport. Um, I saw you at the cricket game recently, and uh, um, I know that you are a Tottenham fan, so we won't talk too much about that. Um, but... Um, <laughs> Um, it's it's almost like, you know, every, every, every kid's dream is to get into sports in some way. Um, and it sounds like you probably um, entered it through a different route. Um, I'd love to know more about the sports tech industry, because it's not actually something I think that is spoken about on a mass scale, um, you know, to, to everybody. And uh, certainly over the last few days, sports and tech has been fairly controversial. Um, I was thinking on the train in, actually, that are we heading into an era where we don't trust the rules around sport like we don't trust politics in the same way? Just with what happened in Formula One, whether it's right or wrong, I'm no expert on that. We had the Champions League draw, which was completely messed up. 
um, through Chaos. technology again. Um, and I know you, you're you're coming at it from a from a different angle in terms of tech, but um, tell us more. Wow. So there's you touched on so many areas there. I mean, um, one of the reasons. I mean, start start from my personal journey in sports and towards sports tech. You know, and I say this to a lot of people. You can't. Uh, and anyone who's gone through anything in life and has got to you know a certain age, they'll tell you the same. You can't, as a 20-year-old, say, I'm going to plan my next 20-year career ahead of time. I'm going to do this, and then in 2004, I'm going to meet this person, and that will lead me to open this company, and then I'm going to bump into someone in 2007 and get an offer here. It doesn't work like that. You can only map it backwards. You know. So when I was, let's say when I came to Israel in 99, I was uh, 24 years old, um, I never looked that far ahead. I think that's actually one of my natural uh, strengths that I have, is that I never really worry, I've never worried about what might not be or what might be. I've just sort of gone with what I enjoyed or what was right for me at the time, always. And like as a natural thing, I think my mother once said to me, she goes, you never worry about uncertainty. I was like, no, not at all. In fact, I love uncertainty because uncertainty means anything can happen. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be bad. It could be fantastic things as well. And a lot of people, I think, are blocked by their fear of uncertainty that, oh, what if, what if? I hear that all the time. I say, what do you mean, what if? You don't have a clue what's going to happen. You know, if you think you can map out what's going to happen, forget it. Just understand that you, you see a very small tranche of life. Go, step down that road, and you'll see a wider tranche. And you'll, you have to accept that you'll never see everything. But if you sit there waiting for something to happen, you're stuck. Anyway, so that's philosophy generally, and that allowed me to sort of um, go from one thing to the next thing, through successes and failures, by the way. I've enjoyed both, and I, I say that very deliberately because I think that um, I've had huge benefit from, from the failures that I've had, as painful as they were at the time. There's no doubt. Everyone says we learn most of our failures. It's absolutely true. Um, and, um, and so I've had the privilege to fail a number of times, and sometimes in a big way too. Um, but when we come to sports tech, the thing that's interesting about sports tech is, um, unlike, let's say, biotech or agri-tech, you know, uh, so sports, people are connected to it from their own particular, from their own personal passion. I don't think anyone uh, invests in biotech unless he comes from the biotech industry, for example, you know, but people want to invest in sports tech because they're connected from a passion point of view. Um, so there's, there's a massive difference in that, and what that leads to, unfortunately, as well, is a lot of amateurism, because people, I, I see a lot of founders uh, with a great idea for sports, but they've never worked in the sports industry. And there's an enormous mm -hmm. difference between understanding the sports industry and being a fan. You know, like go back to the biotech thing. I mean, you can't imagine getting a deck from someone who's never dealt with biotech because I've got a great idea in the biotechnology industry. It just doesn't happen. You know, someone's worked in that. He's understood it from the inside. And in sport, you get a lot of, uh, sorry to say, nonsense because people don't understand the sports industry from the inside. Um, which means a lot of inefficiencies there, but um, there's huge opportunity as well. Where there are inefficiencies, there are also huge opportunities. And especially in this day and age, uh, through COVID, um, it's opened up enormous opportunity in sports technology. Um, the whole marketing game, sponsorship game has changed. You know, the way clubs, if we take it from a sports association point of view, the way they interact with their fan base, it's far less, especially through the first time of the period of COVID, it's far less people coming to the stadium and the food and beverage and merchandise is like, hang on, how do we connect with people who are living half the world away, who are still our sure. fans? And how do we understand those people? There's been a big drive, for, uh, a data-driven drive as well, and not just knowing your customer, but knowing your customer's behavior. It makes a difference to the Chicago Bears if 
a fan who came and bought a ticket or went online and registered is a diehard Chicago Bears fan or if he's just, you know, not if he's on, online, but if he comes to the stadium, if he's just some uh, foreign tourist who was in Chicago and says, I'll go see a Bears game. Okay, it makes a massive difference to the to the club if to understand sure. that person, so that they can then tie them closer with loyalty or not. And so, trying to understand who those people are, a lot of technologies have come into play recently in the last year and a year and a half, I'd say, to really help clubs and associations understand their fan base better. And that goes across everything. You know, understanding how the whether it's in gaming, you know, people who play esports, this is a huge growth area how they're interacting with the game. Are they a casual player? Are they a hardcore player? Are they a potential pro? Understanding that is the key to a lot of things. And uh, not for no reason people say that data is, is all important. Uh, it's the new oil, you know, but gathering the right data so that you can make the right decisions is extremely difficult. So anyway, I'm, I'm I think that's really interesting. You know. <laughs> no, I think that's really interesting, particularly what you said about, you know, in the Chicago Bears example of waiting the um, interaction and fandom level of a particular um, user of the of the of the sport as a fan. So you know, I come with my sales and marketing head that you know every prospect who you know comes onto your website or interacts with a brand, we start waiting them. How many emails have they opened? How many click-throughs? Did they attend a webinar? They suddenly go from a prospect to a super hot lead that we should be obviously targeting. And actually, I, I never thought of it like that. It's so true. I'm probably a, a sort of, you know, halfway fan, but my brother is like super fan. And knowing that data is so important because how you prospect and merchandise and offer other opportunities to them or, or even to upgrade me, upsell Rob, make him a super fan is, right. is critical. Wow. I mean, I got a, there's one company I've actually invested in uh, called Pumpjack Dataworks that do exactly that. And uh, a nice example that I had with them was, uh, not I had, but they had, uh, working with um, the uh, Miami team in, uh, uh, in the MLS, uh, Major League Soccer, where they worked and they, they basically were able to identify geographically that a certain amount of their season ticket holders were living because they were registered, they knew their addresses, living actually very near to a Dunkin' Donuts place. And that data, just, just as a tiny example, allowed the, uh, the team from Miami, into Miami, to go to the Dunkin' Donuts store and say, let's do a corporation where, you know, you can actually upsell our stuff and we can help promote Dunkin' Donuts as well. You would never know that if you didn't have that, have that data at the start to understand who are these people who are coming into your stadium. So it's just one tiny example that you can, it gets the mind thinking of how many opportunities there are out there. Out there for sponsorship, for better advertising, for better marketing, much more directed marketing. So that, that's a really good example. I mean, it's, and there's a lot of things. It doesn't make it mean it's easy. It's really not easy. Um, but the opportunities are certainly there. The, the verticals that, or that, that can live within, um, within the sports sector is manifold. You know, I think of, you know, just from a, as a fan, obviously, the whole change in access to stadiums, which is obviously going to, I think, can tremendously change coming out of COVID. Um, it, it probably already is with, you know, more biometric data. I know as an Arsenal fan uh, with our season tickets, they're moving away from anything that is, you know, paper based or a card. It's all going to be probably eye scan or um, fingerprint entry. Um, all the way through to, you know, the athletes themselves. Just think of the innovations in 
how they're monitoring their, their own success through technology, whether it's health, diet, um, injuries. Um, and, and I guess my, my question out of this for you as somebody who obviously is well versed in speaking to the industry, it is still actually the power brokers and the actual industry itself is actually a small community, I would imagine. Because um, you've got, you know, clubs, you've got owners, you've got different types of players that live in that ecosystem. It feels quite closed. How, how, how are they embracing technology as part of their strategy from what you're hearing? Well, this is, um, you know, an issue that's been, uh, that's been in existence for a number of years is the difficulty for the sort of more old school thinking um, stakeholders to actually embrace technology. Um, I think COVID has played a real role here in forcing people's hands um, because these days if you're a sports organization, whether it's being a club or, or whatever, a team, or, uh, a date organization, it doesn't matter who, if you don't embrace technology, then you're going to die out. And people, I mean, I could have told you that five years ago and it, still would, and it would have been true, but not, not the, the whole world wouldn't have accepted that as true five years ago. COVID forced everyone to realize that that is the case now uh, for a number of reasons. And so what you're getting is um, every organization now has a focus, whether it's if it's a small organization, they at least consult externally. If it's a major organization, they have an internal team. Uh, two years ago, the San Francisco 49ers had something like nine data scientists working for them, two years ago. And they're one of the most forward wow. teams in the, in the NFL. You know, just so to give you an idea. It's a small team. Huh? Yeah. It's what, sorry? a small team. Yeah, yeah. Just a, a small note. team, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but they, you know, this, this is the... Uh, the focus that people have now on technology uh, is is forced now because uh, they realize that they can't understand their fan usage, they can't uh, promote their product, whatever it is, without embracing technology. And, and they get peppered by millions of companies uh, with their offerings. And so it's very difficult to be in the, at, at the customer level uh, and try and make, uh, make sense of all these. You know, every day you can imagine their email inbox is full of offerings for the latest tech that's going to drive your business forward. Not every single offer they get is going to drive their business forward and they have to pick and choose. So there's a big role now for expert consultants. You know, not every consultant is, a, is an expert, even if he you know, claims to be, as you know, in this world. But uh, there's a big role to try and help support the clubs and the associations in their effort to pick the right technologies for them. It's not one size fits all whatsoever. Moving on to other sectors like gaming and betting, which I know you, as we mentioned in the intro, um, have been involved with. Um, it's a natural next stage, probably, of any anyone who's in the sports industry because gaming and betting live so intimately with, with, with sports. How, I guess, give us a sense of your involvement in, in those companies that you've been either led or invested in from, from those verticals and also just... I guess from an ethical point of view, how you view gaming and particularly betting um, in terms of your own you know, strategic investments that you've made or involvement that you've had in companies? That's a very, very good question. <laughs> and you know what? That's the first time, I think amazingly, anyone's ever asked me that question. And I think it's an extremely critical one. And so first of all, I'm delighted to have been asked it. Um, because I think it's all too easy to sort of try and ignore that as a, uh, as a subject that is so important in the betting world. And one of the things through COVID that I, I think was important to understand, 
I was looking at certain data uh, data sets that were showing the use of casino, online casino, going through the roof through COVID. And this was worrying because you're thinking about people sitting in lockdown in their houses, nothing to do, getting anxious because they don't know if they've got a job tomorrow or whatever, and they're sitting at home and just being drawn to the casino. And casino particularly, not sports betting, it drags you in, another spin, another spin, another spin. And honestly, while I was looking at those things and I was shaking my head thinking, this is, this is a potential tragedy here. You've got people getting more addicted, you know, and, and the, the issue here is that the operators are, of course, completely not incentivized to take care of this whatsoever. You know, that, and, and this is a bit of a problem in the industry, and I'll, you know, I'll say this out loud on, on your podcast, and, uh, and uh, it might not be what many people want to hear in the industry, but, but let's face it, when you've got uh, the only area for responsible gaming that operators have to adhere to in some jurisdictions, not in all, every jurisdiction is different, but in some jurisdictions all they've got to do is give a nominal uh, donation to GAMCARE or something like that every year, and these companies are making tens of millions and they've got to give a donation to 10 grand to GAMCARE. I mean, it's just a joke. You know, it, it really is. I'm sorry. It, it's so, uh, it's just giving lip service because the operators themselves have no incentive, financial incentive, to actually control. Are, are there addictive gamblers on our site? You know, they have these, uh, I don't know if you, if you know, but there's like self-exclusion exclusion policies. So any uh, gambler, any better on a site can say, I'd like to self-exclude, please. Well, if someone's addicted, he, he doesn't have that control to put up his hand and go, please don't let me bet anymore. You know, it's, it's a crazy thing to, to think about. There have to be better controls. And I'm actually working, it's quite a topical thing for me. I'm working with a company, a great company in London, um, to try and find ways to analyze data better, to discover patterns in, in betting behavior so that we can, uh, we can basically identify when someone's hitting a level where there's addiction. Because it's not binary. It's not you are addicted, you're not. There's a little bit of a path. Trying to um, look at it early and stop it for those people's benefit, I think, is absolutely critical. And this company in London is fantastic, and, I, um, and it's very early days, but I hope that we can come to some sort of product or service that through regulators can be forced upon operators to, uh, to put in. Because honestly, the operators, there's plenty of money for them to earn from the non-addicts. The addicts are, are a small slice. They're, I don't want to, you know... Uh, you know, try and broadcast here that uh, the whole industry is rotten. No, it's not at all, you know. But we've got a, when I say a small slice, there are hundreds of millions of people betting. That small slice is a lot of people. And if people are losing their homes and losing their livelihoods, and that then has an impact on other people further down the line, this is something that we have to try and control as much as possible and keep betting for what it should be, which is an additional source of entertainment, get people in, you know, I love it. I love betting. It's, it gets you involved in the game. You're, you're more entertained. That's, let's face it, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but there's a line. Trying to protect that line is really important. It's important for me, and when I look at when I invest in companies, I want to know that they have a value that is aligned with that, that their product is not going to be too addictive um, uh, from that point of view, or create addiction where it didn't exist. So, yeah, this is, this is a very pertinent question, and you didn't know that about me at all, and I'm, I'm surprised and delighted that you asked me that question. Um, because it's something that anyone involved in the betting industry does need to set their, you know, where's their line and, and how do they stick to their core values when it's almost too easy in the betting industry in particular to just ignore it and say, hey, look at this, we're earning lots of money from all this constant action. You know, 
It sounds again like technology is going to be the driver in understanding user behavior and, you know, managing all of that. You know, I hate these buzzwords, but, you know, the AI, the algorithms and all the rest of it to actually identify this person has potential um, tendency to maybe become an addictive better. And therefore, we need to build into the platforms that they're using the solutions that, that drive them away from that. Exactly. As best as, as, as a company can, uh, I guess. Exactly. It's always going to be difficult to self-regulate when money's involved. Well, that's the thing. Self-regulation almost never works, let's face it. I mean, yeah, even on a, in a non-betting, you know, there's a lot of uh, complaints about Facebook. You know, Facebook saying, we'll self-regulate. Do me a favor. You know, it's crazy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, and so the regulators have a job here, but the regulators, uh, so there are, as, as opposed to Facebook, there are regulators for gambling companies, and it's their job, I think, to dictate what those operators have to do in order to respect certain lines and be responsible to responsible game, gambling, basically. Good question, though, Ron. Good question. Thank you. Um, moving on to your, I guess, um, as you said, sort of natural tendency to be a founder um, and to get scrappy and, and to build. Um, you're, you're obviously, as I say, on the other side of the fence at the moment with your investor hat on. Um, but what's your advice for founders today? It's, it's, a, it's an interesting marketplace, particularly here in Israel, which is experiencing some miraculous, unbelievable boom of investment and innovation. Um, but what, what do you say to investors? What was your style when you were you know, leading a large company, driving it forward? Um, in terms of, of scale and people, I know just from my own perspective, to be very honest, you know, I've, I've got a very small business and I find the hardest thing is learning how to deal with people that are inside your company. It is the number one problem in my world. Um, but, but share, share more about the, uh, the Daniel founder philosophy. <laughs> you make it sound like I had it all mapped out and written down from the get-go. <laughs> of course, nothing could be further than the truth. You learn as you go along. Um, but it, the, it's so important to realize that everything is about people. Everything. So we've talked about technology and data, but that just means that the way you interface with people is even more important. You know, some, some people could think, oh, well, everything's going towards robotics. What do we need people for? Nonsense. We, we need people. People will always be necessary, at least for the foreseeable future. Uh, to drive business and so how you interact with people and this is true of life not just in business you, you've got to as much as possible understand what's going on um, with the person opposite you and that's true I think of whether it's your wife or your, or your girlfriend or your best friend or your colleague or your boss or whatever if you can try to understand okay I've got I see this and this is my pers uh, perspective what would his perspective be because it's always going to be different the more you can understand that the better off you'll be in, in life generally. You know, it's trying to understand mm -hmm. the perspective of the person opposite you because there's never just one truth, you know, let's face it. It's everyone has a different way of looking at the world and, and when you're negotiating with someone in business, put yourself in his position. What, what does he need out of this? You know, not just what do I need. A lot of people when they negotiate, it drives me crazy. They're just thinking about themselves. Negotiation is between two people. You've got to think for a successful negotiation, if something is going to stand the test of time, you've got to think, what does this guy need to get out of it? You know, how do I not hammer him so that it's just going to be a short-term deal? I don't believe in that anyway. You know, it's all about the win-win from my point of view. Um, and and that, that's an easy thing to say, but actually to act on that, it's it really critical from my point of view. I've had suppliers a couple of times who have made an offer because they were desperate for a deal, 
and I knew things that they didn't know that this was going to kill them. If they offered me such a small, and I'd come back to them and go, you need to charge me more on this. And they look at especially if it was Israelis, they go, what? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is not a good enough deal for you, and I'm happy to pay you a little bit more so that we build something. And because if you're not going to build something, if you're not going to build relationships that are going to stand the test of time, then what the hell are we doing? You know, it's, business is not here for one day. And people who think that I'm trying to get in for one day and get out, well, I mean, that's not, that's not strong business, if, if you ask me. Um, so, so understanding the person in front of you, and it all comes down to the people. And when we talk about setting up a business, you spoke about, you asked me about, I think, <laughs> I babble a lot, so I <laughs> might have forgotten some of the question, but um, about the way we relate to our people inside. So, and this is something that my wife was absolutely brilliant. She, she and I set up the company together in 2004, Redwood International Sports. And what I realized only years later, when it became a bit of a thing, uh, people talked about was we were embracing she was embracing and I was swept along with this the whole concept of servant leadership to an absolute T and, hmm. and you know even before we even realized that was a thing and what is servant leadership it's realizing and this I would I would recommend to everyone every leader every found any wannabe leader if you're a leader it's you've got to realize it's not about you it's actually about the thing you're leading like technology doesn't exist for technology's sake, okay? leaders don't actually exist to serve them, themselves. The easiest way to think about it is in politics, where the idea of public service, okay? and how often do we actually see that implemented where politicians are actually public servants to the true, uh, you know, in the true manner of the word. I mean, it's almost never these days, and it's a, it's a shame. But in, in business, it's the same thing. Um, and it's not easy, because if you're the, the CEO and something, and you, you know, it's your picture on the brochure, it's your name in lights, you know, it's not about you. And you've got to realize that it's about the thing that you're creating. And if, if people are swept up after you, that's a great privilege, but it's a responsibility to serve a purpose. So when it comes to people management, flip the pyramid, understand that you're there as a CEO to serve the people in your company, to give them the tools to do their job better than you. Because a healthy company, um, it, and I've seen this before, it's like, uh, I've spoken to a couple of CEOs of smallish companies, they're like, well, I just do it myself because I'll do it better than anyone. I'm like, well, that's not going to be scalable. You know, and if, no one can do everything. And if you're going to be the chief marketing officer and the chief product officer, you know, and the HR manager, and you're not actually empowering other people to fill those roles, who will surely do it better than you. It's a, it's a sick business if the boss can do the jobs better than the other people. It's a healthy business Absolutely. where they can do it far better because that's what they're ingrained in and you've empowered them to do it. You've given them the, the reins. I, you know, I could talk about this for hours. I, I think, you, better, you better leave the video open for a long time because... <laughs> <laughs> this could turn into like a three-hour Joe Rogan. Um, <laughs> but... Uh... <laughs> But I think it comes back to you. One time, one of my top guys uh, that has been with me now for 20 years, uh, CEO of the company, I remember 15 years ago, he was having difficulty becoming the manager that I wanted him to become. And he was brilliant in his area. And he came to me, he used to come to me, it was in the days when I was the CEO, say, oh, Daniel, um, I can do this, this or this, what do you think? And I'd know what I would choose. But I said to him, I'm not going to tell you what I think. And he was like, he was all anxious. He goes, yeah, but, but what if I do something you don't want me to do? I'm like, I trust you 
to make the choice that you think you should make. He goes, but what if it's not the same choice? He says, you know what I should do? I go, I know what I would do. He goes, so tell me. I go, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> and he was annoyed. But this, t these days, he's a top, top manager because I empowered him to make his own decisions. And we wouldn't always agree. But if, if I'd always agree with everyone's decisions, then what do I need? I just need, you know, you don't want also. I, don't, I have to realize I don't always have the answers. My decisions won't always be the best ones. The best thing is having a, a very diverse group of management. That's another discussion as well. It's critical to have people who are not like you making decisions, but connected to your core values. And then you'll get the best output. If they're all connected to your core values, but they're diverse, so they'll make different decisions to you in implementation, great things can happen. But I think that decision-making skill is something that uh, I personally embrace, and not everyone has it, but it can be trained. And being able to, to as you say, not dither and dather and want to take huge committees around you in, in actually building an answer and actually starting to see the route that you want to take is so powerful in every area of one's life. Being able to decide is huge. And I think what you said actually earlier on in, um, in the podcast around around leadership sinks. If you're gonna be a great servant leader, it has to link back to the vision and values that you have for the company. So if you're building a big business, you want it to grow, you're a long-term thinker, of course you're gonna embrace a leadership style that embraces bringing people on that journey and serving them. If you're a short-term leader and you're all about the quick buck, the immediate, how do I get from A to B and make this money, people become irrelevant to you and your vision and values can't align with being a servant leader because you are completely self-obsessed with your goal. So I think, I think it's that next layer on top of it. Um, it's all about flipping the pyramid. I, Go on, sorry, I'll, I'll let you talk yeah. for once. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to talk about investment at the moment. As we said earlier, Israel is seeing just this incredible boom. I can't even remember the figures because they're going up every day um, of investment into into companies within within the within the region and uh, obviously particularly here. Um, why is that? What are you seeing in the marketplace as somebody who's seeing you know deal flow? Um, and um, do you have any reasons for why this might be? Um, and your own sort of investment criteria, what you look for, what's the sort of one or two key things that when someone walks in a room and they pitch to your business, what is it you're looking for as, 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 as key elements to whether they're going to be investable? All right. So I'll start with that last one, um, if I may. So, if, you know, it's all about the team. If you're an investor, it's always that's that's absolutely number one. Um, I want to see that a founder absolutely knows his business and in because of what I said earlier about the way sports are a lot of founders in the sports industry don't really understand it they come from a fan perspective and and I've done too many due diligence calls where I've had to explain to a founder why they are missing you know they're seeing it from a very narrow angle and and that's not the way the industry works and why they're they have to think again so I want to know that someone understands the business he understands what's needed here um, or what might be needed in the future you know there's a lot of like if we talk about immersive technology AR VR these are things that are not yet um, uh, being embraced fully so these are longer-term plays which could be fantastic I actually have uh, a lot of confidence they will be so it's harder to say this is why the this is how it's going to be implemented but understanding how that might happen is really key so understanding the business totally that you're involved in and that you're feeding into but and, and then understanding which 
blocks are critical to get this right, and then understanding what you as a founder are good at and what you don't know. And then incorporating other people around that who can fill in the gaps, basically, because nobody knows everything. No one can do everything. I mean, I, my area of, uh, I'm, a total, I'm a total amateur on marketing. I have no idea about marketing whatsoever. I'm much more focused on product and, and the data side and things like that. So if ever I build a business, every business needs marketing, I have to have a top person who knows what he's doing because that's what I have no idea about. And so knowing what you don't know is absolutely key. You know, that's key. But a, a question on that, if I'm a founder coming to present to you, how often do you see founders be that humble? And because you've, you've got to have that confidence, but actually be humble in a, a pitch scenario where by being humble, they may lose the deal um, and saying, I don't know everything. Well, I can't, I can't talk for other, other investors, but if I have a founder that tells me that, that's, that scores points because it's him realizing. Because any founder, I had a founder recently who pitched to me and said, um, and I asked him, I said, look, so what's the chance of this, this, you know, it's very early stage startup, what's the chance of this going to zero in your opinion? What percentage? And he hit back straight, he goes, no chance. <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous. <laughs> You know, that's just completely blind. You know, obviously there's a chance. And if someone doesn't accept that there's a chance that this is going to zero, and if it's early stage, especially in the sports business, it's well over 50%. That's not easy for a founder to embrace that. You know what I mean? So I, so I, I want to see that a founder's not drinking his own Kool-Aid, basically. You know, I've been in that position. I set up a failed business once where I totally drank my own Kool-Aid, as the Americans like to say, you know. And, and this is, you know, when you create a deck, for investment, ideally, and I know this can't always be the case, or can always never be the case, it should be the same deck you're presenting to yourself to, un to explain to yourself your own business. Now, of course- Oh, that's such great advice. That is I, great advice. Create a deck for yourself to pitch back to yourself, to challenge yourself about the business, okay? That same deck should be used for investors in an ideal scenario. Obviously, people want to make it a bit more marketable, etc., etc. but there's, you know, between sort of presenting and putting a nice, shiny coat on something that might doesn't have that shine yet fine but where do you where do you say i'm actually presenting a bit of a lie here to myself and to potential investors and good investors will see through this especially if they know the um the industry that's the thing like i can be fooled 100 percent, and this is why i don't invest in areas that i don't understand i i've made this mistake in the past you know if someone comes to me with biotech i keep going to bi biotech because I, you know, I get a lot of approaches on biotech. I have no idea about biotech, but so I can easily be fooled. Someone can show me why this is going to be the next best thing. I'd be like, God, that sounds amazing. But I have no idea. And then I think to myself, well, how many times has someone sit and heard a pitch on sports tech and said, God, that looks amazing. And then I, because I understand the industry to a certain level, will say why it's not going to be amazing. Or probably it's not going to be amazing. And I don't always get it right, of course. <laughs> there was another company I gave up on um, early stage investment about 18 months ago and I saw that they had a big, they were acquired now for a lot of money. So it's like, <laughs> got that wrong. <laughs> you know, is, I don't want it to come across on this podcast that so I always get it right. I do not. But it's trying to but, understand, uh, you know. But, but coming back to Israel, my, my question oh. on Israel as well, I'd love to hear your sort of quick thoughts on why we're experiencing such a boom. Yes, there's talent, but it seems to be miraculous sure but the so from a technology point of view there is definitely superior technology coming out of israel and from my point of view it's very clear why it's one very clear reason it's because of the army 
Okay, so obviously we would love the fact, you know, to have peace and never have an army. But the reason, uh, but the fact that we've got an army here and a very technological one has a side effect of creating incredible technologies and civilian life. Think about it. Where else in the world are you going to get clever 18, 19 year olds be taken away and be presented with technologies free of charge that you're never going to see in civilian life? So you're taking smart kids and giving them access to the most incredible technologies. And then when they leave the army three years later, let's say, they've got so much training as 21, 22-year-olds that they go, hmm, how do I now apply that knowledge in, uh, in uh, the civilian world? And so many of the startups that we see, the technological ones, are people who've come from technological units in the army. In fact, like uh, Shmon al-Khad you know, is, is actually known, I think, as the startup unit just because of that. There's so many people come out of that and create startups in civilian life uh, because if you can you know, track a missile through trees, yeah, until it gets to its target. Unfortunately, the, these things being developed, you know, I'm very much a pacifist and I wish we didn't have this. But if you can do that, and you've developed technology and you've been given the tools to do that, then why can't you do advanced video recognition stuff to help the sporting world as well? It's applicable. You know, you can apply the same sort of base technology. So from my point of view, nowhere else in the world have you got this incubator like the Israeli Defense Forces to take clever 18-year-olds and turn them into geniuses in the technological world. So that's what gives, I think, Israel a real leg up. Um, and so that's been the case for many, many years. Um, and COVID, once again, is, you know, through the world into a whole, you know, an unknown. And, you know, every character type is good at certain things. Israelis are excellent at dealing with crisis. Okay, when you want a crisis, <laughs> you want an Israeli. You don't Call want an Israeli. You don't want an English person when it's a crisis. Generally, you know, I don't want to, to stereotype, but, you know, you know, if you want a project very clearly defined or whatever, get in an English product manager. If you want a crisis where it's like, hang on, we've got to throw out what we knew and now start with a blank piece of paper, Israelis are fantastic. So put those two things together, high-level technology learning through the army, crisis through COVID, boom, fantastic delivery, and the Israelis are getting much more adept at dealing with the, the rest of the world. Um, I, think, I still think generally, again, it's a bit of a generalization, but um, Israelis are not brilliant at knowing how to interface with different cultures. Sometimes they need a lot of assistance in that. I see Israelis approaching um, uh, the Emiratis, for example, in a way that is terrible for, uh, you know, it's just not the way Emiratis like to do business. And since the Abraham Accords, yeah. which is a massive thing, there's a lot of interaction here. And um, I have a lot of experience with um, in Dubai. And I've had to sort of mini coach Israelis how to, you know, it's very, very different business culture. So I think that that's one area where uh, Israelis can still step up a little bit, which is very important. But generally, you've got fantastic raw tools there to, to make terrific business. I think uh, I think that's really interesting. I actually got involved in the Abraham Accords myself as it happened, um, being part of the founding team of the UAE Israel Business Council. Oh, um, I actually have a, another podcast with uh, Fleur Hassan Nahum, the Deputy Mayor amazing. of Jerusalem. She's um, amazing. Yeah. But but I think you make an incredible point, and I'd love to hear your your take on this. Um, the Abraham Accords have just been an amazing um, moment for the region, but you're spot on around the cultural nature of how that will be successful. Emiratis are highly educated, um, classy people in my experience. Absolutely. Um, and 
um, the, the ability for Israelis, and this is perhaps where people like you and me are going to benefit, um, particularly because they often Emiratis have been Western educated, um, is building that cultural bridge between a very rough, scrappy, always in a crisis Israeli mentality. Yeah, absolutely. I get, and I think there is a you know a role to play. And if we uh, if we have the privilege, you and I, to um, help in that way to try and help bridge. I mean, this is this is a great thing that we can do because if you've got two sets of people who have so much to gain from interfacing together and working together, um, and all that's missing is just that translation. I'm not talking about the language. It's just the you know the, the method of interacting with someone then it's, it's a, a great privilege for us to be able to help. I, I was in Dubai at a, at a conference earlier this year, and I was on a panel. And as I came off the panel, this Israeli guy came to me. He goes, oh, Daniel, I see you're hugely connected here. <laughs> I don't know how he came to that. <laughs> Obviously, broadcast something. Um, he goes, listen, listen, listen. He goes, I have a term sheet for my startup. I'm flying tomorrow night. Can you introduce me to some people before then and I can show them? I was like... <laughs> <laughs> not how it works here. <laughs> you know, I said, if you want to be serious about dealing with Emiratis, you've got to think about this long term. Emiratis themselves, and uh, I can't remember which senior royal mentioned this recently, before we do any business with you, I'd like to meet your mother. I'd love to know where you come from. That was great, exactly. And that's, and that's so true of the way they do business. And, and I would say it's, it's not only the Emiratis, it's people who live in the Emirates who are mostly not Emirati. It's, it's a culture um, along, around, around, sorry, around the GCC, which is very, very important for Israelis to understand if we are going to be part of a future in the Middle East that includes Israel as part of that wider, uh, wider area. And, and I'm hugely excited for what this can mean for peace um, all around the region. And I'm also, you know, I believe this is our best chance as well of peace within our own territory here um, because I think that you know, Middle Easterners need to make peace for Middle Easterners. It's not going to come from America or the European Union who don't quite get how we are. And uh, so I'm optimistic. I mean, it's one of the best things that's happened in this region for forever. Um, and it's great to be part of it, great to be alive while it's happening. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Okay, I am taking up too much of your time. So I've got two last areas that I want to discuss. Um, we met the first time in the offices of V, the social impact volunteering platform with, as you were mentioning before, young, bright, incredible entrepreneurs. Um, and my peer mentor is exactly one of those. And uh, you're an investor there. We're actually advising on sales and marketing there. Um, I want to talk about social purpose and impact within the workplace today. It is the sort of buzz area. It's a hot topic within probably every boardroom from every company of particular size, how they're addressing their, their social responsibility as a business. Now, I'm, I'm, I can sometimes swing two ways on this because sometimes I feel companies can be contrived in how they deliver this. Yeah. And you sort of can smell that this just feels like a, a tactic. Um, yeah. But on the other hand, does that matter? Because the good that comes out of it exactly. um, is, is, is good. Um, so I'd love to know more why you broke with your model of, um, you know, really only investing in sports um, yeah. and why social purpose is important, why it's high on your agenda um, as, as an investor, as an entrepreneur um, and as a business owner. Wow. I mean, so 
yeah, I definitely, I did break with protocol and, and invested in uh, V uh, <laughs> for sure. But I think that anyone who's met with my uh, would probably understand why. You know, I, um, we met and she, she, we had a meeting together, my wife, and, uh, because my wife is very focused on, um, on social impact. And uh, so we met together with Ryan and immediately we were saying, yeah, want to be invested. Do we understand the business? Not really. <laughs> but, you know, that was, it was just something that felt right from a value perspective and just from a, an operational point of view. Like you say, we know that it's, uh, companies will want to have a, a corporate social responsibility um, part to them, whether it's just for ticking a box or whether they really believe in it or a bit of both. Okay? But like you said, do we care? If they're doing something, they're doing something. And a company that is only ticking a box, they need a company like V to sort of put it in front of them, the ability to connect between their employees and a volunteer program. Otherwise, they're not going to really do it themselves. And so it's great for box ticking companies. Why not? And, it's, and it's, <laughs> they do something. I mean, the V platform is, is beautiful in its simplicity. It just puts it on a plate for the HR department normally of a company to get their people involved. And, um, and if a company really believes in it, um, and we had done uh, a number of, at our company, we had done a number of, uh, uh, of initiatives. It's a lot of work, um, you know, to try and get your employees together to go and, I don't know, renovate a house somewhere for someone who's like struggling, you know, things like this. There are huge benefits to actually doing this. You know, first of all, you are providing um, a fantastic uh, service for people who, who need it. But there is also a benefit internally. You, you really do connect your employees to the company through your own core values by doing these things and actually not just saying that we do these things but actually doing them. And you also create bonds between your employees, between themselves, which is hugely valuable, you know, commercially valuable for every business. Is if, if the employees, especially in this day and age where there's a lot of remote working, whatever, they need to be connected to something. And if they're not connected, then the next job is just a week away. And if you connect them... Well, I think, I think what's interesting is the change in... Um, the way communities are structured today and, and our lives are structured, um, I think maybe in Israel it can be a little bit different um, just because of the religious nature of you know, different communities. But may, this might be a very general statement. I actually think because family and community is breaking down generally, particularly in the West, yes. um, people are then looking for a replacement they need a community a sense of belonging and the natural place to do that is where you spend most of your time which is up until recently in the office with um, with, with, with 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 colleagues and they become your friends and your family and your community as opposed to you know 20 30 50 years ago where you know typically the man would go to the factory would do his day's work and come home to the family the wider family and maybe some local friends so this 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 sense of you know social impact has this double edged sword of actually being able to provide um i think meaning to people's life yeah. who are part of your wider corporate family 100% absolutely and when we're these days so connected, we can see everything that's going on. If you just open your eyes, you can see how many people need help. And if you are in a position of privilege, that you are successful, you know, for want of a better word. I don't like it because success is, you know, defined differently for, for different people. But if you've sort of had financial success in business, I see that as a responsibility. If you're privileged enough to have that, you have a responsibility because 
you know, it's not any anyone who really knows a thing or two that should realize that if they've had financial success, there's a lot of luck involved. There's timing. It's not just because you're a great guy. Yeah, I know a lot of people who are far cleverer than me, um, who um, just haven't had that fortune. You know, and and so if you realize that, then my God, you know, this is a um, a place of responsibility to try and help other people. Uh, who have been less fortunate than you, and you see them all over the place. I mean, I'll be honest, COVID for me has been a bit of a weird time from the point of sitting down right here in my garden, having calls, you know, thinking how lucky I am. This is this is ridiculous. I'm so fortunate. And, I've had, and especially in Israel, I've had weird periods over COVID where I have a call, let's say, 9.30 in the morning with um, some founder who's raising a huge amount of money for a startup, and he's flying high and whatever. And then half an hour later, I'll speak to a friend who can't pay his gas bill. And then I realized that these two people live about five kilometers away. And that's, that just doesn't seem right. There's just something wrong there. You know, there's, and there's a widening gap as well. So somehow, if you're on the lucky side of things, trying to bridge a little back is, is really important. And I, I, I would never judge anyone who does or doesn't, because sometimes if you're so engrossed in trying to build a business at the beginning or whatever, you, you might not have time, really, to, to look at that. But if you gone to a certain level and you have a certain level of maturity in your business, you need to have that from a value perspective, to have that corporate social responsibility segment of what you do. You really need to have it just because it's right. And there is commercial value in having it as well because you tie people to your business in a much, much way. But it's that's the secondary thing, but it always works that way. That's in my experience anyway. Daniel, we have taken too much of your time already, and there is so much more that I would love to discuss with you. So please, God, you will be one of the lucky guests on season three, because there are so many more questions that I want to ask you. This was so enjoyable, insightful, valuable, just for me personally, and this is why I do these. I'm really selfish. I just get to meet great people and chat with them. And if I can share that with other people, even better. Um, but thank you so, so much for your time, your insights, and uh, wish you continued success, good health, and uh, you should always follow your dreams. Amen, 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 amen. Thank you so much, Rob. It's been a real pleasure. And I, I look forward to catching up with you and meeting on flights or wherever it might be, in the V office or wherever in the coming period. Lovely to chat to you. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Coffee with Curtis. If you got value from this episode, Please follow and subscribe to be updated on future episodes.